0: This week on Launch Stories.
1: I think one of the key ingredients for any founder, whether it's a public company or a private company, is the ability to fundraise and to inspire confidence in investors. And there are some great founders who are good at running businesses but are terrible fundraisers. And unfortunately, those businesses will probably never go far because fundraising is a very key part of the game, whether it's in the private market or the public market.
0: Welcome to Launch Stories, the global startup podcast. I'm your host, Zoltan Vardi. The Launch Stories podcast gives you a taste of what it takes to launch a global startup. Listen to founders share their personal ups and downs, their professional wins and losses, and the lessons they've learned along the way to building an international company. You'll also hear from accelerators and investors that support entrepreneurs along their journey around the world and what they think is the recipe for startup success. So join me on Launch Stories Get inspired and learn the ingredients of a successful global business. My guest today is Nanad Maravats. Nanad is managing partner of DN Capital, a leading venture capital and growth investor with operations in London, Berlin, and Silicon Valley. Nanad co-founded the firm with Harvard Business School classmate Steve Schlenker over two decades ago. Since then, they've built DN Capital into a European powerhouse, with $1 billion under management and early-stage investments in breakout successes like Shazam, Auto One, Home2Go, AppSmart, and Datanomic. The firm's 58 exits include six IPOs on the London or Frankfurt stock exchanges. Forbes magazine recently recognized Nanad's track record, naming him to their 2021 Midas list, the definitive ranking of the top 25 BC investors in Europe and the Middle East. Nanad and I will reflect on his early days in the European venture capital scene and what his twenty-plus years backing founders has taught him about what it takes to build a successful global business. Let's listen to Nanad's launch story. Hey, Nanad, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on our uh, podcast. Thank you. Thanks
1: for having me, Zoltan. It's good to see you again. It's been a long time. It
0: has been a long time. In fact, I was just reflecting that. it was somewhere between 25, 30 years ago that uh, we were both part of that uh, group of young Americans who returned to their roots in in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall to take advantage of a range of emerging business opportunities in the region, you in uh, private equity, investment banking, me in, in the media business. Uh, I'm wondering, as you sit now in 2022, reflecting back on that period, What is it that you learned about business, about yourself on those early days that sort of influenced you and eventually your move into venture capital and the creation of uh, DN Capital? Actually,
1: it's funny because Budapest was my first uh, venture job uh, between my first year and second year at Harvard Business School. And I got the job through a guy named Ryan Schwartz, who had done the year before, who I think you also met in Budapest. And that was the first taste of a venture for me. And then uh, also I joined Advent International, uh, which is a large private equity firm after business school, and actually uh, full circle back to Budapest. I worked in their Central European team, and uh, I was actually a generalist, so working on deals all over Europe. But uh, the one deal that I led uh, was an IT company in Budapest called Synergon. It was a leading player, systems integrator and sort of ERP provider for the region. That was a company I sourced and I led the deal, actually took it public two years later. And that's kind of one of the the main reasons I I ended up investing in tech is because uh, I also invested in a chicken company in Hungary.
0: (laughs) Wow, so that's quite a a non-technical business.
1: Yeah, the chicken company was a disaster and it was a horrible experience having to go there and see the slaughter line and have to eat chicken when you can still hear the chickens quacking. And we lost all our money on the chicken deal and on the tech deal we took it public within 18 months and we made five times our money and i made partner at advent
0: so I, that's how I start. start got into tech. Uh huh. I see. I see. So, so uh, the old adage "Don't count your chickens before they've hatched" is uh, is an adequate one here, right? You, one of the things I read about you is that you actually had worked in Berlin for uh, a couple of years, probably I think after business school, uh, and uh, you called yourself the castle seller because you actually had sold three castles as part of, I guess, some sort of uh, distribution of state assets. Tell me about that. Wow, you really did your homework here. <laughs> So, yes, I joined the trojan uh, right
1: before business school. Excuse me. That was before business school, actually. That was from 91 to 93. And uh, I was there in, in Germany, actually, to learn German at Goetz Institute. And uh, I actually learned German pretty fast. I ended up getting a job at the Trojan about six months after I was there. And I was working in German. And I worked in a department called uh, which is a special arts assets of the Communist Party. And so we were selling printing com- companies and 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 hotels, and, and also they had castles, which they'd used as conference centers for you know the political party. And so these were not, not easy assets to sell, because there was a lot of requirements by the German government in terms of how much money you would have to invest to keep the castle looking the way it did outside, Denkmalschutz. And so uh, you got some quite interesting characters coming across trying to buy castles. <laughs>
0: So who's in the market for a castle in uh, 1994 or 1993 in Germany?
1: We had princesses. We had some, uh, what I would call uh, carpet beggars, <laughs> basically used to come in their office and like put their little paper bank statement on the table and <laughs> flap it down and tell us how <laughs> much money they had. And, uh, and we're like, okay, that's great. But now you can, you basically got to put in an offer like everyone else and tell us how much money you want to invest uh, in, in the... Uh, In the property as well as your purchase price etc right i sold one the deal went through and it closed and it was to actually a carpenter out of Darmstadt. then the second one we were selling and and we had all these sort of like crazy you know it was a big castle all these kind of people trying to you know sort of position themselves as as worthy of buying castles but actually um our carpenter ended up buying that one too wow well, he actually had the team that could do the work to fix them up. Yeah. And uh, he was a real solid businessman, uh, super lovely uh, gentleman. I, I One day I want to rent a car and actually go visit all these castles again.
0: I'm sure it'd be a trip down memory lane, I'm sure. Absolutely. Let's fast forward a couple of years to, to the year 2000 when uh, time came for you to launch DN Capital. My research shows that you sort of got together with, a, uh, with one of your business uh, school partners uh, to launch that business. And, and actually, I remember from that time or slightly after that time, uh, a conversation that I had with my brother, who you know and uh, who is a conduit between us. And uh, we were catching up. I think it was sometimes around 2005 and your name had come up in conversation. And my brother said something along the lines of, you know, and I started this uh, venture capital firm and, you know, he invested in some technology that recognizes music. Uh, with a fairly high level of of sarcasm in his voice. And I distinctly remember acknowledging his skepticism and saying to myself, God, what crazy shit people are willing to put money into? Well, that crazy investment uh, ended up being the song identification app Shazam. Uh, And for those of you who don't know, Shazam is actually one of the most popular apps of all time, downloaded over a billion times and used by hundreds of millions of people uh, each month to search music. And it was acquired by Apple in 2018 for $400 million. Um, I guess we know why you made it to the Forbes Midas list and my brother and I didn't. But what I'm actually interested in is what you remember about that opportunity back in 2004 when you invested in Shazam, what made it interesting for you, and what did you learn about building a venture-backed company uh, in the 14 years before making your investment and and eventually exiting?
1: So Shazam is is such an interesting uh, investment for so many dimensions. First of all, it was sourced by my mother.
0: Wow, that's a great story.
1: How did she get in her hands on this opportunity? She's best friends with Chris Barton's mother back in San Diego, and so my mother had said, "Oh, you've got to meet Claudia's son, Chris, in in London." And Chris Barton was the founder of Shazam. Yeah. Okay. Chris Barton's the founder of Shazam. So basically, I met him at a conference, and then uh, we were we were on the same flight back to London, and then we're in the taxi, and he actually demonstrated the app for me, and I was just like, "Wow." That's incredible. And this was over um, IVR technology. It was like, you know, you had to dial 2580 on the phone and it
0: worked. Because this was actually before the concept of an app existed, right? I mean, this was before the iPhone and all that stuff. This was a really,
1: really clunky technology, but it worked. When we invested in the company, actually, that's, that's not the full reason why we invested. They also had a B2B side of the business, which was using the technology, the fingerprinting technology, to actually monitor airplay on radio stations. So getting the artists their money, because every time the radio station plays a song, Nick Jagger gets a certain cut of that song. Right, royalty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was basically the technology they were using. Otherwise, someone would have to like sit there and listen to every song and like, write it down. So yeah. Shazam was actually a very useful product for the music industry even before the app. And so we invested, I think, I want to say in in 2004 yeah 2004 and uh we went through i don't know three four ceos i don't know how many ctos i don't know how many vp sales uh it was uh it was a company where it required a lot of work it was never a straight line but so we invested at a 1 million valuation and we sold it to apple for undisclosed figure, but did raise money at a billion. I'll, I'll let you do the do the math. Sure, but it was a fantastic result for the firm, and you know one of you know most interesting investments I've ever made.
0: And you once uh, said, or I read a comment, you said it's your favorite deal ever. This is in a comment to, to Andrew Fisher, who was like a CEO of Shazam for uh, for some portion of that time.
1: I love all my deals equally, <laughs> so, uh, I, I won't go on record for saying that. But it was definitely <laughs> one of my favorites, and it was just a, a company that just went through so many ups and downs and. Working with Andrew was a pleasure, and you know a lot of the people in the Shazam team. And in fact, AppSmart came out of Shazam. And AppSmart mm-hmm. is a company I actually founded the idea and approached Rahul, who used to be a developer at Shazam, and we created the company ourselves, actually at DM. And then we sold it like three years later at Thompson. So to this day, Andrew's a good friend and same with Chris. And it's just a great group of people.
0: Fantastic. So one of the themes that comes through uh, your communication, um, and this is on your website and and some of the interviews you've given over the last years, is the importance of analysis and research and making investment decisions. I think your website says something like, we believe in investment rigor at all stages. You've said in the past that uh, having a really disciplined approach to analysis is what has helped you make it through some tough periods. When I speak to most investors, the thing that always comes up in venture capital is you really invest in people, right? And founders who have a clear vision and who they believe can overcome the obstacles to build a successful business. This feels like a bit of a contradiction to me. Analysis and rigor versus investing in a founder and their vision. How do you see this? Uh, Is successful VC investing built on the back of rigorous analysis or is it on trusting the vision and capabilities of the founders?
1: It's both. You have to have that feeling towards the founder and the empathy and and really want to work with that person because you're going to be working together for a long time. But you also have to keep a good eye on the numbers and focus on the unit economics and and really just you have to keep your eye on the ball. I've seen certain founders who have operated recklessly, having burns, very high burns with very little money in the bank and not just thinking that the VCs are going to come and bail them out. And that's not the way it works. And and so I just think the good founders are, are very good at understanding their numbers understanding their 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 kpis their unit economics and planning and making sure they have capital for 12 months at all times and not running it running things too tight uh, where they can get themselves in a bind and then it just becomes a uh, a negative spiral uh, when mm-hmm. people wait too long so our top founders are really good at understanding their numbers their kpis and uh, planning carefully on fundraising
0: but, you know, that's, that's got to be one of the most difficult things, right? Is balancing that, that uh, focus on, okay, guys, we're here at the end of the day to make a profit to, you know, building scale and taking market share and all that stuff. It's funny. I read uh, one interesting statistic. The Shazam actually made its first profit in 2016, which is 17 years after it launched. How do you reconcile that? I mean, how do, you, how do you kind of balance that in your management of your portfolio companies of making sure you're investing in the business to grow, but at the same time, you know, not running out of cash?
1: It comes back to that very point we discussed before. It's fine if the company is is burning cash, as long as its unit economics are positive and healthy. What's not good is if you're burning cash and your unit economics are crap. So if you're if you're operating a business where you're losing money every time you sell your product, <laughs> that doesn't work. But if you're making money, like you take a Spotify, which has amazing unit economics. So yes, of course they might be burning money, but um, their unit economics or lifetime value over CAC on a customer is so high, and the sort of the cohorts are so good in terms of retention. Uh, and that's what I mean by rigor is really focusing in on cohorts, retention, unit economics, uh, LTV over CAC, et cetera.
0: For those of our listeners who might not know what long-term value over CAC is, it's actually the total money of money you generate from a customer over the cost of acquiring that customer right? That's the, the basic elements of it. So one of the things I've, I've noticed in your portfolio, you've had 58 exits. Um, and you've had six IPOs on the London and the Frankfurt Stock Exchanges. Any founder that I speak to considers- the- I think a few more than that, but those are the big, probably six big ones, but we've had more than that. Yeah. Okay. So the six ones that have certainly publicly available information. So to me, startup founders consider going public sort of as the holy grail of success, right? I and mean, if you can build a company that ultimately goes public, that's sort of the, the true reckoning. Is there anything specific about the companies or founders that that are able to take a company from concept to IPO that you've noticed in in your experience with these companies?
1: Yes and no. I think one of the key ingredients for any founder, whether it's a public company or a private company, is the ability to fundraise and to inspire confidence in investors. And there are some great founders who are good at running businesses, but are terrible fundraisers. And unfortunately, those businesses will probably never go far because Fundraising is a very key part of the game, whether it's in the private market or the public market. So we do look for people that have that skill set.
0: And fundraising means what? Being able to get in front of uh, investors and do a good pitch? Or, or w- where does fundraising come to life?
1: Fundraising means bringing it home. You've got to close a deal. Pitching is great, but you've got to be able to actually close the deal and also create competition and make sure that you don't have just one uh, investor on the hook and make sure there's others. And it's a, an acquired skill. And some of our uh, CEOs are phenomenal at it. Akon from Auto One, Felix from Go Student, um, Fabrice Grenda. I mean, these are, these are phenomenal entrepreneurs and also very good fundraisers.
0: So I was just going to ask you if you could give me an example, uh, obviously providing as much detail as publicly available, but about like a fundraising process that, that really worked well and you know what drove that? Well,
1: I think it's in all cases, it's been performance of the, the companies were performing well and the ability to inspire confidence in investors. And I think uh, Hakan Koch from One and Felix Oswald from GoStudent, Philip McGee from Quandu. I mean, there's there's quite a few in our portfolio. Andrew Fisher from Shazam, one of the best.
0: Interesting. So there is a process or a, the dance you have to do in order to present your proposal and present your opportunity to, to investors and obviously back it up with real financials and results. right? At the end of the day, that's the best source of, uh, of funding is, is your own cash flow. Let's take a pause and shift to a bigger picture discussion, which is about the European investment environment, particularly as it relates to other investment hotspots, specifically Silicon Valley, maybe even parts of Asia. You wrote a blog in October 2017 about how European venture capital sits in the shadow of its bigger, bolder US counterpart, you wrote. And you said that uh, while there were growing signs that Silicon Valley Uh, no longer as a monopoly in producing unicorns, lots of investors are still unfamiliar with Europe's opportunities and ignore its potential. That was five years ago. Uh, Do you think the attitude towards European venture capital has changed in these five years uh, since you wrote this or are investors still ignoring its potential?
1: No, it's definitely changed. I mean, you can see that with Sequoia and Bessemer Lightspeed all opening offices here. Um, You see the guys from Kotu, Tiger, all over the place. They're all over the market. The US investors are all here. Uh, The global investors are all here, SoftBank, um, ProSos, et cetera. So uh, I think Europe is definitely... I wouldn't say it's comparable to the u.s market just given the size and, and scale etc but i think it's definitely on the map i think today it's silicon valley it's china and it's europe
0: so investor interest has definitely grown and expanded in this presence what about in terms of actually building a business in europe versus building a business in the states so you know i i work with startup founders as a mentor i help them scale their business into international markets and one of the things that i often have to remind uh, U.S. Uh, partners is that in the U.S. you're speaking to a market of 350 million people all speaking the same language, spending the same currency, you know, with a lot very similar uh, consumer habits, whereas in Europe you're building a company of, of potentially the same scale but across 25 different countries, uh, 20 odd languages, legal structures, regulations and everything. How do you see that from a, from an investment standpoint? Is the, is the extra pain of building a large business out of Europe worth it from an investor standpoint, or is it just easier to pick U.S. companies and scale?
1: I think it's absolutely phenomenal, because if you look at the U.S., really, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, pockets of San Diego, Austin, Boston, and then there's not much else, right? Whereas in Europe, we've got centers like London, Paris, Stockholm, Helsinki, Berlin, Madrid, uh, Barcelona. You've got so many interesting ecosystems and then you haven't even started with Eastern Europe and the amount of tech talent in the Baltics and Romania, Serbia, Croatia, Hungary, close to your heart. I mean, there's more Nobel Prize winners per capita in Hungary than any country in the world. Right. So the brain power that I think exists uh, in Europe. And now that, you know, everything can be done, you know, you can set up a company virtually and a lot of people are working from home. So you can even like, you know, coordinate and orchestrate a company virtually, I think is a phenomenal opportunity. I don't think technology has to grow out of one particular place. I mean, certain areas of tech, I think will always be very strong in the US and semiconductors and sort of deep infrastructure tech, but even that. I think is also companies like UiPath coming out of uh, Romania, right? And, and now,
0: absolutely, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Andre Bartosz, who was the, one of the seed investors in UiPath. He's with Credo Ventures, and he told me the story of UiPath and, and how that grew into a, into a unicorn. Uh, so it was, it was a great, great story. So, so one of the markets in Europe where you made a strong move uh, back in 2005 was was in Germany. Uh, there are very few people at the time we were looking at that market. Uh, why did you make this move and how do you think you've benefited from it as an investor? Huh.
1: I think it goes back to my early days in Berlin. I loved the city, fell in love with the city. For me, it was it was always a pleasure to go back there. And then my first investment there, Mr. Specs backing Dirk and his team, super solid team, performing very well, come back to rigor. I mean, in terms of analysis, that company had everything perfectly the way we liked it. Very strong unit you know, economics, just very good growth, excellent company. And we took a public last summer. And then that was the beginning of a lot of deals in Germany after we did Vinland and then after Quandu, and then we did Auto One, home to go, and the story goes on.
0: I read somewhere that uh, that eight of the top 25 German companies by market cap from the last 20 years have been backed by DN Capital. Does that sound uh, familiar? I'm not sure if that's the
1: exact correct number, but I know we've done quite a few of them. The market leader in Germany, of course, is is Holtzbrink. And, you know, they've got 13 people on the ground in Germany versus versus us flying in periodically. But we put people on the ground now. Um, we love Holtzbrink and Cherry and all those guys. So we're, we're friends with all those guys. Mm-hmm. And want to co-invest and, and just
0: love that market. How important is it to be present locally in an individual market in Europe?
1: Well, I think with COVID, it's extremely important because travel has been such a pain in the ass. That's why we decided a couple of years ago to open our office there. I usually spend 40% of my time looking at deals uh, in Berlin. And so it's been a little bit of a hassle the last uh, couple of years. And now we've got the office and I try to make it to Berlin once a month, sometimes twice a month. And are there any
0: other markets in Europe that you've considered uh, organizing uh, local presence?
1: Yeah, we're very keen on Stockholm. Uh, We also love Madrid. Madrid's been very good to us. We have job and talent down there and and a couple other companies. Stockholm is, I think Stockholm, to to penetrate Stockholm, you need to be there. It's hard to do that one from uh, long range like we did in Berlin. I think uh, the Swedish market's very small, very closed. I think you need to have someone on the ground.
0: You know, one thing I noticed about the European VC community is that it seems quite incestuous. And what I mean by that is that a handful of investors take part in virtually all of the same successful deals. You know, I I looked at through the 2021 Forbes Midas list, uh, of which you are one of the two newcomers that were named to that list uh, for Europe and Middle East last year. And I, I looked at the companies that were mentioned as references and basically an an overwhelming majority of the people on the list had invested in the same few companies. So Ottawa, Home2Go, both companies you've invested in, Deliveroo, Hopin, Revolut, Robinhood, UiPath, just to name a few. It feels to me like there's basically 25, 30 people investing in the same 10 deals. Why do you think this trend exists? And is this kind of investment club feel unique to Europe? Is this something that you'd see in Silicon Valley or Across Asia as well?
1: Well, I think there's two points there. One is if you look at every unicorn or super successful company, they require hundreds of millions of euros, dollars to get to to that unicorn status. And so, you know, we're a series A firm. So we're usually the first one in. And so, and, and in most of those companies, we were the first one. So in Ottawa, One, we're the first. In Home2Go, we're the first. In Go Student, we're, we're the first together with Left Line. It's important to after that, then, of course, we need to raise the B, the C, the D. So, of course, there's going to be lots of funds coming in later. And is there sort of a circle of, of co-investors that each investor likes to invest with? There's that. And then there's also the fact that there's not that many funds that can write 20, 25 million euro checks. And so the same people will come up again and again and again. I mean, once you get past that 10, 15, 20 million euro sort of check size, there's very few players.
0: A lot of them are international. I haven't done the research, so I can't, I don't know the answer to this question, but if you did sort of a similar analysis in Silicon Valley, would you kind of come to the same conclusion? Sort of 25 investors going into the same 10 deals?
1: At the top end, you would see a lot of the similar names because you start getting into, you know, $100 million uh, dollar fundraisers. There are very few people that can do it. So you would start to see quite a few names, but on, on the on probably in the first A, B, and C round you'd see a lot more different names. I mean, you know, there's more, there's more VCs and... 3,000 Sandhill Road than there are in all of Europe. Right. Well, I guess that, yeah, there's a question of scale. And you got a whole street full of, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of VCs in the US.
0: So, one of the things I read about you in various articles and comments from companies that you've invested in and in founders is that you're very strong in networking and building a network. Um, one of your investors said uh, when he makes an introduction, everyone takes it seriously because he has been around for a long time and he knows what good looks like. Another of your founders said that uh, not offers a very strong network outside of venture capital. Is building of a network something you've done consciously? And have you seen the benefits of this approach on your various investments over time?
1: It's funny. Do you know what DN stands for? No, I don't. Digital networks. Okay. So it's in the name. (laughs) name. And because everything's digital, it's all about networks. That's how we came up with the name. Definitely 1999. <laughs> so we changed it to DN. But uh, we could call it DN Digital Networks again. Because they have Rocket, Atomico, Digital Networks. It's kind of like. The Jetsons. I think the networks that we have built over time have been, and we really nurture them and, and try to be good to everyone. And it doesn't always happen, but it is usually our modus operandi. And open it up to our, to our companies. And that's been very helpful. I mean, I brought Andrew Fisher into Shazam, brought in Katie. Who is Katie? So the first US employee, Katie, I brought in. We met her. She had been working in mobile in Japan, which was much more advanced at the time. So we put her into Shazam put Andrew in, put Keith in, who was the first CFO, uh, put Stuart in, who was the first CMO. So I helped build the whole team together with Andrew in the early days of Shazam. And that was mostly, it wasn't headhunters. It was us taking people that we knew. And I think that was important. I think a lot of good VCs do that. I mean, I had the pleasure of working with um, Matt Murphy from uh, Kleiner Perkins. Working with Kleiner and Matt, I mean, those guys brought in some serious talent. So we never would have gotten Jason Titus into Shazam if it hadn't been for Juliet and Matt at Kleiner. This is what we do, right? What what does a VC do? It provides money, but then we also provide contacts for people to the company to hire, put on the boards, also customers, channel partners, and then help with strategy, but also help with fundraising. So in a lot of my companies, I'm introducing the entrepreneurs to the next check because the company is raising money every 12, 18 months. We open our network and try to you know, get them in front of these key investors very early because it's, it's essential.
0: Well, well, to me, this actually brings to life what you constantly hear from every VC, which is, well, we're not just giving money. We're actually, you know, smart money because we're giving you, you know, ABC. Um, but it seems to me like you're actually delivering, right?
1: You'd have to talk to our CEOs and, and, and check, but I, I hope <laughs> we are. I
0: hope we are. So, Nanad, we've, uh, we've heard uh, a lot about your uh, role as a venture capitalist. And actually on your website, you list yourself as a venture capitalist surfer and philanthropist. Uh, I wonder how do you bring the surfer and the philanthropist to life in your uh, day-to-day existence? Well, not enough surfing.
1: I'd like to do more. Um, but usually I do get in the water quite a few times in the summer. I grew up in San Diego, so I miss surfing a lot. Uh, I really love it. It's the best way to chill and just feel very zen in the water. Um, it's a beautiful setting, et cetera. And then philanthropies, we've been very fortunate and, uh, want to give back. So one of the uh, charities I'm involved with is K Mason, which is helping out underprivileged children in South Africa. And uh, we've sponsored three kids so far. And my goal is to do 10. And that's funding their education all the way from sort of like uh, elementary all the way up till university. That's one thing. And then one thing I want to work on, you know, my father was a professor of computer science. Uh, He passed away last year. And so I wanted to set up a foundation to help kids um, sort of in the former Yugoslavia, um, kids that are studying math or computer science and set up some kind of scholarship for these kids. And that's something I I haven't haven't had time to work on yet, but it's something definitely I want to do over the next coming years.
0: Well, Nanad, it uh, sounds like you're putting the the fruits of your labor and success to great use. I wish you lots more surfing and more philanthropy in the future. And for those of you out there who listen to this podcast, I think you got a really great insight into the the mind and the approach of a really top level investor with a tremendous track record.
1: Zoltan, great job. I, I, I was very impressed about the work you did. Uh,
0: I was very impressive. Well, thank you. We try to do a good preparation to make it an interesting interview. And I thank you very much for uh, for joining me on line Stories. And, uh, I hope all of you out there got a bit of inspiration once again, and learned some of the ingredients of what it takes to build a successful global business. If you like what you heard, as always, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends.